Welcome to the Bailey. Yes, we are back. We even have a theme song, and it's by none other than Breakmaster Cylinder. This means that we are officially a real podcast, fully licensed, certified, and whatever. We were previously on an informal hiatus because of life, uh, but now should be back to regular schedule, at least however regular it was previously. One quick note about today's episode. One of our contributors requested anonymity, so we hired a voice actor to dub over their lines. We here at The Bailey are fully committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion as part of our core mission statement. Our decision to hire a Nigerian woman to replace a white man is evidence of our dedication. The fact that globalization allowed us to tap into an offshore and undervalued labor market is completely irrelevant. Again, our decision was not at all influenced by economic factors, and any insinuation otherwise will be treated as per se defamatory. Enjoy. Welcome to the Bailey, the official podcast of the Blocked and Reported subreddit. I'm your host, Yassine Muschot, and today's topic is multi-ethnic casting. We're going to talk about the issue of race flipping in casting decisions. We're also going to discuss uh, the topic of diversity in media. Joining us today is a new contributor by the name of Ishmael. We're not going to say what his real identity is, uh, because a lot of uh, his views will be fairly unspeakable in polite uh, society. So uh, we haven't done it yet, but uh, the voice that you're going to hear in the final episode is an actor that we hired to redub uh, everything that uh, Ishmael has said. So you're not going to get to re- uh, hear his real voice. Uh, but when we introduce you, Ishmael, I'd like you to at least like describe yourself because it's relevant to this uh, to this conversation, so that people are at least aware of uh, where you come from. So, hi, Ishmael. Happy to be here. Um, I think my description will be pretty clear from my position statement on the episode. So I go into that now. <laughs> You're a white male. That's uh, probably like uh, the most pertinent aspect, right? It's true, and I'm never going to live it down. <laughs> and also joining us today is Sultan. Hello, I'm Sultan. I'm also a white man, albeit one who uses an Arabic title. Yes, and you're also gay. Yes, so feel free to accuse me of cultural appropriation by that token. You're appropriating uh, the name from the Arabs, and you also appropriated your sexuality from the Greeks. Of course. Granted, the appropriation comes by way of uh, the Dire Straits song, Sultans of Swing. So if you want to blame anybody, blame them. All right. And uh, as you all know, I'm Yassine. I'm, uh, I'm an Arab male. Uh, that's going to be relevant. Uh, typically, we don't go by identities or uh, uh, core characteristics here at the Bailey, but uh, given the topic, it's, uh, it's bound to be uh, pertinent. Uh, so the instigator of this conversation has largely been a new trend recently where adaptations and uh, productions of uh, various TV shows, movies have made it a core to their mission to diversify, quote unquote, their casting uh, roster, specifically to include more people of color and less white people. To me, the, uh, this has like reached the point of maybe trolling. Uh, the first uh, thing that comes to mind is the TV show Bridgerton, which is ostensibly about uh, the English aristocracy, uh, but a significant portion of their uh, main cast is black. There is a, a tiny, tiny bit of historical basis for it that's uh, 
fair to say it's questionable because one of the main characters is Queen Charlotte. And there's a, probably the best descriptor is there's a French theory uh, by a historian who believes that based on the contemporary paintings of uh, Queen Charlotte, uh, this historian believes that Queen Charlotte had some African heritage. So based on that tiny uh, nub of historical basis, essentially someone thinking that she may have African uh, heritage, uh, the showrunners went all out in terms of uh, placing uh, black actors in their lead. I think uh, all of you are uh, familiar with that, right? Oh, yeah. We all watch Bridgerton in my house. <laughs> Do you actually enjoy the show? No, I've never seen it. It horrifies me. <laughs> all right. So uh, let's, uh, let's get into it. Why does it horrify you? Well, let's get into my position statement then. Right. My position statement short is that we must secure the existence of our people and the future of white children. And the reason I bring that up is because that, sounds familiar. that is <laughs> the reason I bring that up is because coming out of the mouth of literally anybody but a white person, a black person can say this, an Asian person can say this, anyone else can say this, and no one would bat an eye because, of course, anyone will feel that way about their people. But when a white person says it, hold on, that's not okay. And I think we're seeing this coming out in a big way in casting and media. We shouldn't forget how powerful media is for forming people's conceptions of the world. And I think what we have here is a classic Mott and Bailey where the Mott is, oh, everyone should be represented so they can see themselves represented in media, which itself I think is a false Mott. And the Bailey in this case is, it's not okay to be white. It's not okay to portray white civilization. It's not okay to allow white culture to exist in any dimension, essentially. We can't even tolerate its portrayal historically because it is so dangerous and awful and bad. And I think that's that's actually what we're seeing acted out in this uh, quote-unquote um, multi-ethnic casting thing because the thing is, it's not an option. It's not you can portray anyone as anything. It only ever runs in one direction. It is obligate non-white casting is what it is. Okay, so I, I think your position is uh, potentially slightly hyperbolic, but we'll, we'll get into it. There's there's the obvious uh, counterpoint to your position in that media, at least in the United States, has been dominated by the white race for decades, since its inception, for a variety of factors, some of them benign and some of them uh, malicious. Are you telling me that a primarily white country creates primarily white media? Yeah. I'm sure that no other ethnicity does that in their countries. No, but I'm not saying that. Uh, it, it, you know what I mean? It, it was not. It was never proportional. It's not like you had a uh, an accurate cross section of the population as it existed in the United States. It was overwhelmingly and disproportionately white uh, in terms of who the actors were, who the directors were, who the producers were. And there's a variety of reasons that are not exciting enough to get into. Uh, but you have to acknowledge that there was a disproportionality, right? I do. And I think there should have been, um, with the, the technology at the time, it wasn't like today where anyone can make anything. I mean, at least as far back as the 70s, I think there certainly was opportunity for someone of any ethnicity to make whatever media they wanted, staring entirely their own people, if they wanted. 
and release it and have it picked up and distributed. And uh, some did. Well, okay, but it's not it's not just a limitation on the I okay, let me let me step back. What do you mean by it was based on the technology at the time? Well, um up until like I said, I think 70s, even the 80s, the difficulty of producing and distributing media was very high. It took a lot of capital. It took a lot of coordination. And that reduced the number of uh, entities or cooperatives that were able to do it. So by nature, what you're going to have there is the few that are able to do it are going to be um, disproportionately very successful. So what we're going to see is primarily whites and Jews capable of producing media. And what they wanted to do to recoup their investment was targeted towards the largest market, the largest demographic in the market. So that's what they did. Now, up until recently, America was overwhelmingly white. And it is a truism that people will most closely relate to actors of their own ethnicity. That is just generally the case. And that's why representation matters, right? Well, I, th- I think that explains uh, the disproportionality in terms of the producers and maybe the the providers of capital, the investors, but it doesn't really explain it in terms of the actors because it's not that minorities were invisible or non-existent in media. Uh, in many instances, they went like <laughs> the producers bent over backwards to include minority characters, but specifically played by a white actor and often to hilarious results. When I tried to see, watch uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, a movie that's heralded as a, as a classic, I couldn't last very long because as soon as I saw Mickey Rooney's Asian character, I, I thought it was just like too fucking ridiculous to to bear. And I just stopped watching it immediately. I don't know if that was played in, in slightly in earnest. I, I have no idea. I don't know the context of when the movie was released. But they, they could have cast an, an Asian person. It's not like they, they had a shortage of them at the time in this country. Uh, so the fact that they went to such lengths to cast a white person to make like an Asian caricature uh, does demonstrate uh, reluctance uh, on the on that front. So it's not just oh well we have limitations by technology like this is the best that we can do. No, they they put in effort just in the weird direction. Yeah, I agree. That's weird. And like you, I don't really understand exactly what the rationale was there. Obviously, it it reminds me of a. Classical stage plays where all the women will be played by men, for example. Why? Just why? I don't know, but it does seem to be a running theme in in media of all kinds. I agree that that was dumb. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. I don't have a problem with hiring an actual Asian. (laughs) Okay, so one more example. Uh, My favorite is uh, the 1962 British film Othello, where Laurence Olivier plays... The main character. And I just want everyone to just Google Lawrence Olivier Othello because the amount of <laughs> shoe polish that they had to put on this guy to make him look black. I'm uh, amazed. Just like, yeah, it just, he just was, looks slightly blue. <laughs> it's, it's really fucking funny to me. Uh, but the amount that they, they put on him was just completely unnecessary. If they, if their goal was just to make him slightly uh, swarthy looking, uh, they, they they put him like in a complete uh he looks like a, a pillar of obsidian uh is what i'm saying yep uh so that that's just like another example where they had a leading uh figure 
And I guess they wanted some historical authenticity uh, instead of hiring a black guy or, you know, anyone from like the Middle East. I mean, they could have got, gotten Omar Sharif. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if he, yeah, he was active around that time. They could have gotten anyone like him, but instead they got a white guy and like had a bucket of shoe polish to, to make him fit the, the role. So that's, that's also another example. So go ahead, Ishmael. I, yeah, no, I, I agree with everything. I think that was silly. I I don't think that that has almost any bearing on how far the pendulum is swinging in the other direction, though. What do you mean by that? Because the, the majority of... Uh, well, do you have any evidence to, to indicate that the pendulum is swinging too far? Yeah. I I would say that at this point, it is de facto um, forbidding to have any production of an entirely white cast even in historical portrayals i've even seen uh plays canceled because they were in like entirely white areas and they couldn't find minorities to fill in historically white roles and they said well that's not okay we we literally just can have at a high school or a college we can have an all-white cast that's not acceptable that's never okay. I think that's the pendulum swinging too far the other way. Yeah, but those are isolated examples of of maybe like, you know, potentially you could say that's the woke mob taking things too far. And I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree, but those are still isolated examples. If we look at, let's say, I don't know, the top grossing movies of the last decade, uh, you still have overwhelmingly the, the leading roles played by white people. Well, and that weirdly seems to be what international audiences want, which surprises me. Well, hold on. Um, I don't, I don't but, know if that's necessarily an indication of what the audiences explicitly want. Obviously, American culture is very is a very popular export, uh, but just because it's movies with white leading actors are, is popular, it doesn't mean it's because they have white leading actors. Not necessarily. I mean, maybe it's true, but it's not necessarily true. I'm comfortable trusting the market in that case. I <laughs> okay. I I uh, think we yeah. No, go no, ahead. Finish your thought. I I think if uh, there were money to be made in replacing white leading characters with those of other ethnicities, would see it happening, and we see it tried constantly. Those movies just tend to flop. Same thing with putting a uh, female leads instead of male. Audiences don't generally want to see that as much. And we can argue about why all day. It doesn't really matter. The point is, there doesn't need to be a nefarious conspiracy here. Whereas no one has a problem with an all-black cast. In fact, they will call that diverse, which really gets me. Okay, but that's still getting like besides the point. What, yeah. what you were claiming is that the pendulum is swinging too far in the opposite direction. And I'm asking for evidence. And what I see is the top movies that are being made and that are successful still have overwhelmingly leading white actors. So I'm not seeing this as an indication of uh, a, so like a white genocide in the media. See, it's not total erasure of all white people. It's erasure of just white people. Um, again, even... Even if you wanted to portray like 14th century Poland in a video game, people would get mad at you if there aren't non-white people there. Okay, so your position isn't just 
you don't you're not you wouldn't be content with majority white actors you want exclusively white actors i want the option for exclusively white actor actors or exclusively anything else if you want to make a a portrayal of i don't know um hamilton with all black people that's great i don't have an issue with that the issue is that you can only do it with non whites um and can you imagine for a heartbeat what it will look like if someone tried to create a historical chinese drama with solely white actors it's unthinkable it it would not be allowed well it, it's unthinkable because i wouldn't understand the rationale behind it i mean if it was all black actors i think you'd have a similar perplexion right i don't know about that i don't think the outrage will be anywhere near the same level i think um in fact i i wish we had i i'd like to go try to research this and find examples of that it's not clear to me why it's okay for it it's 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 just clear to me that that's the case i i think that uh um minorities seem interchangeable in that respect the way the media treats them okay i can't i can't think of an example either let's uh let's move to you sultan i would contend slightly with uh, ishmael's assertion that say nobody would be willing to bankroll or promote or just recognize a movie that is cast exclusively or almost exclusively with white actors i think maybe one of the biggest examples to the contrary in recent memory was uh the coen brothers picture hail caesar from 2016 which is set in a hollywood of the 1950s and as a deliberate reference to trends that you identified you seen basically all of the principal and background cast are white i think that there is one non-white actor who is visible in one scene playing a background character and essentially the most that that movie received by way of backlash was just hot take think pieces from familiar outlets like Salon for instance saying that the Cohen brothers lacked imagination and that they lacked the imagination necessary to conceive of envisioning like say some alternate history hollywood that was more racially diverse than the actual 1950s hollywood but it still grossed 63 million dollars on a 22 million dollar budget it still received nominations at the academy awards i wouldn't say it did anything really to damage the careers of the cohen brothers and i would say uh in general it's not considered damaging in that way to make the decision in the other direction i would say to the extent that as ishmael identified there's been a lot of movement towards wanting to promote visible diversity in front of the camera that has a lot more to do with the uh ideology of the people behind the camera in so far as wanting to visibly signal their commitment to racial diversity diversity equity and inclusion what have you that there's a lot more of a choice involved than he may be uh 
indicating. So one of the things that comes to mind when, when we're talking about, let's say, the hypothetical of an all-white cast, I think in certain contexts, it makes sense. So when you're talking about 1950s Hollywood scene, it makes sense that it would be an all-white cast because that reflects the reality. Uh, if you make, a, a let's say, a, a movie set in contemporary times that's all-white, you would have to establish some relatively unrealistic premises to to make that realistic. Wouldn't you agree, Ishmael? I I would, but I I I I wanna spin that a little bit, which is that uh just a sec. I gotta turn on my daughter's thing. Sorry about well, this. Hold on. Uh well what matters uh, I just wanna remind you, uh it's, everything's gonna be redubbed. So the background noise doesn't matter. Oh, dude, thank you. My, uh, my inferior white brain hadn't caught that. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> you're correct. Uh, let's move on. All right. What was the question? <laughs> it, to establish, uh, if we're going to establish uh, a piece of media that's set in contemporary times and it somehow has an all white cast, you would have to establish some unrealistic premises first, right? Yeah, I agree. You can't portray modern society as all white. It isn't. And I I wouldn't want it to be portrayed that way. I mean, it would be an interesting artistic project and I'd I'd like someone to be able to do that if they wanted to. On on the flip side, I I'd say there are exceptions to where we can portray all white cast, just like the one Sultan brought up. Um the rule, I would say, is you can have a primarily white cast or an all-white cast if one of two things is true. Either it's portraying historically savage errors, like if you want to show a bunch of um, um, Norwegians sacrificing people to trees and stuff and, and being total savages about it, yeah, then they can be all-white. That's fine, because again, it's considered to be taking whites down a peg. Oh, you think you're just so noble. But look, you guys were just barbarians like everyone else. The other exception is uh, parody or poking fun at what is perceived to be the way uh, white civilization used to be. So you can have a bunch of upper class aristocrats being total buffoons um, like Chips and Worcester or that sort of thing that will totally fly today as long as it's making... Essentially, as long as it's a parody, as long as it is a dressing down of that that white cast. I'm mostly perplexed because I'm I'm trying to think of examples of of the concerns that you're raising, and I'm and I'm failing. I just don't see this widespread trend of only having an exclusively white cast as a means of ridiculing the demographic. I think I just uh, like I'm I'm thinking of actual examples. Well, that's what I can I'm name sure. some TV shows. Sure, um, go ahead. I did watch. <laughs> I think there's this one called Norsemen by Netflix. Um, I am pretty sure their cast is entirely white. And it's absolutely a case of let's poke fun at uh, traditional white culture, you know, with all the crazy things they do and their beliefs and their, you know, how backwards and barbaric they were. And I mean, it's. A comedy. So, so what, what, what would be a piece of media that you want to see happen that has an exclusively white cast? 
Well, I'd like to make me any historical piece, for example. Um, and, and even then I, I don't necessarily mind if there's a historically attested, you know, non-white character. I think that's interesting and cool. Um, my concern is that even in cases where there are none, they will be forcibly inserted and your production will not get made without them. That's my concern. Why is that a concern? So let me try to talk around this a little bit and see if I can get at the center of it somehow. I remember when I was a teen and this was back in, I mean, um, you know, the early odds, maybe circa 2004. I remember talking to some cousins of mine who live in an entirely white part of the country. I mean, there's just no non-whites there. And they were all making fun of themselves, saying, Oh, you know, we're so lame. All our friends are white. We, you know, we don't. And I, I knew immediately what they were talking about, which is that all the media they see, even back then, says, you know, if you're cool, if you're hip, you have a multi-ethnic friend group. Um, and that attitude, I think, essentially constitutes abuse. It It is saying it, it's not okay just to be white. They internalize that. They will jokingly say that about themselves. Uh, that that concerns me. Um, and it's at the point where, I mean, look, white children are growing up in a world where they're not allowed to see white society depicted. They're not allowed to see their ancestors portrayed positively. They're not allowed to see any of this stuff. They are fed a steady stream of education to the effect that these beautiful black bodies of gender uh, created the modern wait, wait, wait. world. They're not allowed to see their ancestors positively? They're not allowed to see them portrayed positively in media now. The, the messaging always has to be, I'm telling you, uh, you, the messaging. Go ahead. The messaging always has to be that the, the societies of the ancestors were rich and vibrant and multicultural and diverse. And that uh, all the things the ancestors accomplished were actually, you know, at least in part accomplished by non-whites. And that the primary role of whites historically has been to hurt and steal from everyone else. I really think that is a messaging that all our kids are being taught these days. And the media is a big part of that. <laughs> my, my response is generally like citation needed. And also I'm, I'm just curious, like what eco, uh, yeah, what ecosphere you're inhabiting that you're seeing this because it's not, it's not reflected in, in what I'm seeing. I can potentially, uh, well, I might have something to add to that. Yeah. Okay. I was just going to say um, that despite, I guess, the examples you identify to the contrary, I would say it still seems quite possible to contrive a scenario uh, of casting a cast that one might consider improbably white for the time and place and still get away from it if you give a sufficient reason for them to do so. And what I would point to, to in that case would actually be um, Blade Runner 2049, which is set in and around the Los Angeles of 2049. 
Uh, and like Los Angeles is, I believe like even nowadays, a pretty heavily uh, majority minority city. But if you look up the cast list of Blade Runner 2049, you'll see well, the principal roles are Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford. I guess the most major character played by somebody who could be construed as non-white would be played by Ana de Armas, who is part Cuban, part Spanish, but is, I think, by any stretch of the imagination, what uh, people would consider white passing. And in terms of the major non-white roles, you have the black actor Lenny James, you have the Hispanic actor Edward James Olmos uh, reprising his role from the original Blade Runner. Uh, you have a very small appearance by Barkad Abdi. But in general, like the non-white actors in that movie are mostly relegated to bit parts. And the population of 2049 Los Angeles that you see on screen is like by any reasonable construal of current demographic trends, like significantly more white than we would expect to see in like 30 years from now in real life. Right. So I'm sure there's going to be like a think piece that, that took offense at the casting choices. Yeah. But like, despite the think pieces, Blade Runner 2049 was still critically acclaimed, won several Oscars. So if you give people something to uh, focus on other than the casting choice, then that's not going to be the most pressing thing on everybody's minds. Like you can still get away with stuff like that even in around 2019 when that movie came out. Yeah, so that would be, uh, I mean, it was critically acclaimed, but it was also a box office failure. Uh, and it's possible that uh, the casting choices may have contributed to that. I don't have any evidence to indicate that it was. I love the movie, and it's sad that it didn't make mu- a bigger splash. I, I agree. And actually, I want to acknowledge that as a counterpoint against me, that is totally valid. I don't have an argument for you there. That is definitely an example of a movie that was made recently. I only saw it once. I thought it was great. I would have to think about it more and try to come up with a reason why I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> but yeah. fundamentally, I think you're probably right. Okay. Um, but you have a couple counter examples. Uh, so I remember um, there's this movie... Darkest Hour, Sultan. I'm not sure if you remember what year that came out, but I feel like it was about five years ago. 2017. So um, this is one where, you know, we're seeing British civilization struggling with, you know, the Nazi threats. And well, we, we all understand the story, World War II, Winston Churchill, are they going to stand up and try to fight and possibly lose their country? Or are they going to buckle, etc.? And in this movie, you know, we see at the climax where he goes to talk to the British people, um, goes down into the underground and talks to British people on a train. And what we find is that, you know, there's a, there's a black man on the train who's not just as British as everyone else. He's actually the epitome of Britishness. He's the only one on the subway who can quote 
I think it was Thomas Macaulay, um, flawlessly, this poetry, this great British poetry, you know, and, and that's exactly what I would expect where it's, it's not even that we have to acknowledge that, yes, there were black people there. We have to show how really they're even more. They're even better. They're, they are, they are the examples of a, who we are that's, but, but the cast in that movie was overwhelmingly white. I think exclusively white, except for that one minor character, right? Because it was historical figures. So yeah, they had to invent a minor character because otherwise you'd be making up a British nobleman out of whole cloth, which isn't going to fly in a historical flick. But they still had to find a way to get a black man in there and show how really he's, he's just great. He's even more British than uh, the British people. So, so and this then gets actually, into the... there's an there's actually a really interesting window into this phenomenon. I think um, we can see the difference between Lord of the Rings coming circa 2003, and then the Hobbit trilogy coming out of what ten years later, where Lord of the Rings is an overwhelmingly white cast because. Tolkien wrote that uh, story intentionally to be a, a mythological background for Britain. That that's that was his um, stated intent. Was I want to make a mythology for British people because we don't really have our own. And so you have Lord of the Rings that everybody's white. You know, ask. There's probably an example somewhere of something to the contrary, but I can think of one. And then when The Hobbit comes out 10 years later, exact same setting, when we see the city of Dale, it's again vibrantly multi-ethnic because, of course, it is, we can possibly portray it as just white in that time frame. That change happened, uh, I'm also told I'm not as familiar with the Wheel of Time, but people keep telling me about um, the Wheel of Time series from Amazon, where the worldview and the the world as portrayed by the author is again overwhelmingly European-ish. Obviously, it's a fantasy setting, um, but of course, when they go and make a uh, a TV adaptation or whatever TV is these days, um, they have to completely change that, rip all that out, replace all those people with people of other ethnicities, just because, of course, you would. You can't not. So this, this gets into um, a corollary topic, which is the idea of proper context within, within media. Um, so the a few examples come to mind. So there's the, you know, modern, there's a bunch of Sherlock Holmes re-adaptations, but the one that was, what was it? Like, you know, Cumberbatch or whatever. Let's see. Um, 2010. I need to figure out how to pronounce that guy's name. Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah. So there's the Sherlock Holmes adaptation from 2010 with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, and, I appreciated a few things, at least like at the, at the beginning, the first season. I thought this first season was excellent. And then it just got really weird after that. But the 
adaptation is of a character that was created in 1870s Victorian uh, England. And the character, Sherlock Holmes in 1870s, has a cocaine habit. And he uses that habit as a way to spur his mind into, into thinking and solving crimes. And the cocaine habit is not unusual given the circumstances because cocaine at the time was something that you could just pop down to the pharmacy and buy over the counter. It wasn't a contraband substance. When they made the adaptation in 2010, if Sherlock Holmes had a cocaine habit, it would imply a whole host of different assumptions about the character that would not be present in the original uh, thematic vision of of the character. Uh, Because he would be addicted to a controlled substance and that would have ramifications that wouldn't mesh with the original intent of, uh, of the character. So instead of giving him a, a cocaine habit, he instead has a nicotine patch habit. So he pops on a, nic- a nicotine patch and, and like tries to solve crimes whenever he's like buzzed and wired from, from nicotine. It's, it's a little weird, but it's, it's kind of a nod to, uh, an aspect of the character that was uh, fairly core and central to the original manifestation. So that that's one example of, of like rejigging uh, the character. And I also just want to point out that uh, Watson was injured in the Afghanistan war. And I think anyone that watches the 2010 version would assume, Oh, they mean the, the, the they mean the 2001 uh, Afghanistan war. Uh, but so if you look at the original stories by Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Watson was also injured in Afghanistan because uh, Britain had a military conflict in Afghanistan called the Second Anglo-Afghan War in 1880. And that's where uh, Watson got his injury in the original uh, canon of, uh, of the characters. So I, I thought it was a nice nod that he was injured in Afghanistan, in a, specifically in a British military venture in Afghanistan, both in 1880 and in 2001. So I, I applaud the writers for including that, that bit of uh, trivia. So I, I was okay with giving him a nicotine habit because giving him a cocaine habit would just be too weird and jarring uh, and too distracting. And there's another example that I'm going to use from uh, a British media. And that's the 1955 uh, Dan Busters movie. Uh, this was a highly influential film. Uh, you can see the lineage that it, you can see the inspiration that it uh, provided for uh, Star Wars specifically. Uh, the film is about a um, British uh, regiment that tries to blow up dams as, a, as an act of uh, sabotage using uh, these bombs that they jury rig and uh, this like daring night, nighttime raid uh, where they drop the bombs as a way to, to blow up these dams. And the dam, the regiment had a dog and the dog was named nigger. And when they conducted this operation, they had a a variety of code names that they would communicate over the radio. And as a way of uh, maintaining uh, confidentiality without giving away, um, (laughs) are you laughing because you, you know where this is going? Cause you said the word. You said the oh, magic yeah, word. Care. Yes. <laughs> uh, but so they, they had this, they had this dog with the Royal engineers. They use a, they use a bunch of uh, code words to designate this thing happened. Like failure would be one code word and success would be one code, uh, another code word. And in the movie adaptation, this was in 1955 uh, uh, England. It, the word wasn't considered offensive within that context. And plenty of dogs were named nigger uh, in England. Uh, throughout the twentieth, early twentieth century, 
so there's the scene the like the penultimate i'm gonna spoil a 1955 film uh but there's a scene where they finally drop the bomb and like it, it makes a hit and the code word for success was nigger so they communicate the word over the radio and there's this amazing scene where the radio like operator is like back at hq and he says something like sir it's nigger like excitedly very very happy because that designated that their mission was a success Come on, boy. Come on, nigga. Come on. Come on, nigga. Come on up, fella. Well, you won't have to wait for me for a long, long time. No, you won't. Going on holiday. Down to Cornwall. Rabbits. Rabbits, boy. Hey. Come on, Skipper. You'll miss the bus. Okay. Come on, nigga. Come on, boy. And <laughs> if you go to the... <laughs> if you go to the Dan Busters... Uh, sorry. If the, yeah, if you go to the Dan Busters movie Wikipedia page... Uh, there's a bunch of um, <laughs> attempts to uh, to deal with this uh, inconvenient uh, piece of fiction uh, or piece of historical adaptation. And Peter Jackson is also remaking the movie. And I, I think that there were a bunch of articles of how exactly he he's going to change it because changing it would be historically inaccurate. But uh, if you put out a movie in 2022 or whatever, uh, where a main character excitedly jumps up and says, "Sir, it's nigger." Uh, it's not. It's not going to gel. It's going to be distracting. Uh, everyone's going to wonder what. What does that mean? Like, is the entire regiment just racist? Uh, it's going to be very confusing and distracting, and it's going to uh, take away from the themes of of the of the story. So, I'm okay with changing the code word. I'm okay with these changes when they serve to reduce distraction and keep the audience focused on the theme of, uh, of the narrative. Yeah, I would generally agree with that. And that they're, uh, as you said, when it's not something that could be construed as crucial uh, to the narrative, that there's not really much harm done in uh, making that sort of change. Like, for example, I believe one of... Agatha Christie's most successful mystery novels, uh, now widely sold under the title, and then there were none, uh, actually had an original uh, first edition title that just had that N-word right in the title. It was 10 little blank right there. Yes, just because it happened to be the, um, uh, the title of the rhyme upon which all the murders in that murder mystery were based. Yeah. Was it used as a, as a slur in that title? Um, I, I wouldn't say so in so far as it's just a rhyme about 10. Well, let's see. The current published version uses soldier rather than, which was a replacement for Indian, which was a replacement for the previous word. Uh, and it's just a rhyme about 10 little blank boys went out to okay. dine, one choked his little self, and then there were nine. And so it's just a rhyme about uh, 10, uh, 10 different boys who may be soldiers, Indians, or redacted, dying in various ways. Okay. And yeah, apart from that, there's no particular significance to them being... Uh, described as that in that way. But since there's no particular significance to it, there's not really anything lost from changing the descriptor, just 
in the rhyme uh, within the book itself. Right. Uh, so this is probably like my, my ultimate point. When we're talking about reducing distractions or making changes that are uh, literally historically inaccurate uh, for the goal of re- reducing distractions. That's what, how I see uh, sticking to uh, specific racial demographics on that on that front. So if we make a movie nowadays that is set in contemporary times and we have an all-white, exclusively all-white cast, I think the audience is going to wonder, like, where are all the brown people? Like, what happened to them? It, was there a genocide? Like, is this, uh, uh, is this uh, like a group that explicitly discriminates against the brown people it's it's going to be distracting from the theme of the narr- uh, the narrative so i'm i'm struggling to think of like when well first my question to you ishmael is how do you feel about these historical revisions when they serve to reduce distractions so in the case of uh, the cocaine habit i agree that that kind of thing makes sense personally i wish they'd gone with like um adderall instead of nicotine but you know, um, yeah, that would have been perfect. That's neither here nor there. It would have been perfect, right? Anyway, I still have a little bit of a concern, which is that when we do these things, we are to some degree making the past last, the past less legible. We are uh, sweeping it under the rug a little bit. I think, especially when it comes to like words, when we change the word that they used. And I don't know, is the Jam Busters based on a historical event? Yes. And it's fairly, the movie is historically authentic. Right. Uh, fairly so, so. So I think, I, I think we're distorting the past to some degree. I agree that there can be a good reason for it. And I'm not unilaterally, I'm not, I'm not entirely against it. I think, um, you have a point. I think it should be the author's choice essentially but you can imagine if the movie was released today it would be confusing to an audience because not all of them are blessed by right and the that's benefit good. of me that's, uh, standing next to them be like hey by the way here's the proper context of 1955 england of the usage of the term right that's a good thing and they shall be confronted by the past and surprised by it and then go learn about that context and hey things used to be different it wasn't always the case that anybody saying that word would be just completely erased socially forever. Yeah, but you can't guarantee. I, mean, okay, I even remember in high school. You can't like impose this like obligation that everyone watching a movie is also going to have to research everything about the, the events it depicts before they can fully appreciate it. Because if someone just watches the movie, they're just going to be like, what the fuck was that? That was really weird. Why did they do that? Uh, and they, I want you... Go ahead. I want you to think. I want you to carry that sentiment forward and think about all the other historical things that would get erased with that, with that um, justification. All the things in the past that were different or potentially scarier, confusing or offensive that now we're going to have to get rid of and pretend like they were never there because, oh, modern audiences might not get it. All we're doing there is retarding people such that they have no idea how things used to be and flattening history. It doesn't have to be retarding people. It just, if if your goal is conveying a theme through media, you can only do so much. Your bandwidth is only uh, so much. You can't like be expected to 
to communicate every single idea that you have. And if you're making a historical drama, there's a lot of nuance that is going to be lost unless you provide the time to give the the proper context. And I think a, a show that does this beautifully is is the HBO's Rome, which sadly only lasted for two seasons. They had to compress the timeline of the events that they depict, but uh, in terms of authenticity, I'd say it was it was fabulous, like historically authentic in terms of the of how it depicted Roman society. And all these like minor uh, little gestures, like how Augustus Caesar, when he's young, he just kind of casually slaps one of the house servants with this disdain that doesn't even get registered by the other characters. I thought that was just a beautiful like two second moment that captured how the Roman nobility treated its slaves with this kind of casual disdain. And you didn't need the, you had the sufficient uh, background to appreciate that as, as the audience, you didn't need uh, extended explanation. Uh, and so it didn't, it wasn't weird given the context. It didn't require extracurricular research before you appreciate it, but not every media is going to have the space to be able to pull things off like that. Right. Look, it's a trade-off. And again, um, I'm not unsympathetic to what you're saying. I think it's, it's a decision that every creator is going to have to make at some point on multiple levels. And it can be the right thing to do. Like you said, maybe it's, it makes sense to change the cocaine to Adderall or nicotine. My concern is when we do that over time in aggregate, we risk saying that things have always been more or less as they are now. Um, and that, that is also a real danger, I think. I was going to say, you bring up a good point, Ishmael, that um, I feel maybe the biggest uh, drawback to a historically diverse cast is, in my eyes, giving the false impression that previous time periods had much more enlightened or what we would consider to be modern views of race than they necessarily did. Like, for example, the Bridgerton series that was brought up early on. Um, like the idea that, was it, that largely black characters would generally coexist with the British aristocracy and be valued in turn does strike me as rather ahistorical. Uh, given the, well, just exclusion in general of the British aristocracy, especially in prior centuries during which the show is ostensibly set. Uh, and also to connect with Darkest Hour, where not only, uh, as you said, was the one uh, black man on the London Underground uh, fictional, but the entire contrivance of Churchill having ridden the underground in that one event was also fictional. I, I think it does a disservice to give the impression that people whom we admire from history had basically modern opinions in that way. I think it does a disservice to uh, people to essentially downplay the extent to which attitudes back then were not what they are today. And that's what I would see as the main potential damage from that sort of thing done poorly. So I completely agree with you, uh, Sultan. Uh, I think I have to, I have to assume that the Bridgerton casting was a little bit trolling on the part of the showmakers because I think it's hilarious. I think it's, it's really funny, 
that they made a, a show, a period piece about the British aristocracy and most of the cast that it chose was, was black. I think that's hilarious. If I wanted to steel man their decisions, sure, it's not historically accurate. And there's definitely a risk that it's going to uh, convey this false sense that, oh, well, look how enlightened the past used to be because they had no issues with having nobles be of a certain race. That's going to uh, convey a false impression of, uh, of what transpired for sure. But at the same time, as long as you recognize that it's not a documentary, as long as you recognize that people watch, consume media for a variety of reasons, part of it is just to get a nice story uh, or whatever, then it doesn't really matter what their race is, right? And if we're doing um, something like a blind audition when we're casting uh, for a particular production, then you are going to end up with a quote-unquote diverse cast just by, by chance. So on the subject of blind casting, um, I have something for the show notes that we'll put in there, um, which gets directly back to Bridgerton for me, which is that, uh, uh, let's see, the, the item in the show notes is a New York Times article calling to end and blind auditions for orchestras because really blind casting or blind uh, auditions, blind um, orchestra assignments, that's not what we want. And the reason I don't like Bridgerton isn't anything about it per se. I think if it existed in isolation, in a healthy media environment, or what I consider to be a healthy media environment, I would agree with you. It's hilarious. Like, who cares, seriously? Who cares about Bridgerton? The problem is that it's part of a larger dynamic. It's, it's part of a larger tapestry where the actual... The actual mindset here and what we actually see playing out is that non-whites must be advanced over whites in all categories of life. They have to be preferentially allowed into schools. They have to be preferentially hired. They have to be preferentially given poetry awards over potentially better poets, etc., etc., etc. They don't want blind equal casting opportunities. They want... Because the color of your skin, you're going to get ahead of the white man. And we're going to keep doing that until equity, quote unquote, is achieved, which I don't think it ever will be because, well, that's a different topic. Yeah, but before we before we go on, I, I think we ought to clarify something with regards to blind orchestra auditions. Uh, that doesn't mean that they consider candidates irrespective of race. That means that they actually have somebody play an instrument from behind a curtain and they make a decision about whether or not to hire them from the orchestra based purely upon their ability to play and nothing Merit. else. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult to imagine what blind casting would look like, uh, given how central to the role uh, someone's appearance and demeanor is. I can see that being done for voice for voice acting, maybe, but it would be difficult to do it for anything else. Well, and the point I keep trying to make here is that the reason this topic bothers me is that it's not just about casting; it's that this is a this is a one tendril of a much larger monster that has reached into all areas of life. And yeah, in isolation, again, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's when I look at the big picture and the same, the same thing advancing itself throughout all areas of life, I think in aggregate, 
It's a big problem. And this is a big part of it. Okay. Uh, so I want to co-sign on some casting decisions that actually improved the show, even though they were unorthodox. Uh, an example would be, well, specifically like what, what people refer to as quote unquote diverse casting choices. I think my favorite is probably uh, from the TV show Atlanta, where they cast Justin Bieber as a black guy, which I think is just really fucking funny. Uh, and it's also uh, very cohesive within the the universe of Atlanta, which is this very kind of surreal and bizarre landscape. Uh, and casting Justin Bieber as a black guy and kind of having him be this exaggerated version of his real life self does add dimension to it because you start to wonder whether or not, at least I did, I, I wondered like whether or not uh, a black Justin Bieber would be able to get away with the same things that a white Justin Bieber did. Uh, and it was, if, since it was cohesive with the theme of the show, I didn't have any issue with it. I thought it was a great artistic uh, change. Uh, the other uh, one I really enjoyed was uh, HBO's Watchmen, which is probably like one of the best TV shows I've ever seen. I love the comic. Uh, the movie was okay. The TV show is just phenomenal. And they have a black character in there, but he's not just black because by chance, his race is is entirely central to his role uh, within the story and specifically within the story of superheroes and why they need uh, secret identities. I'm reluctant to spoil much of it, but the, the, um, the takeaway, at least from the show, is that there's a very big difference between, let's say, someone like Bruce Wayne, who is a white billionaire. Why exactly he would need to keep his identity secret uh, versus, say, a black guy in the 1950s that wants to be a superhero and why he would have a much bigger reason to keep his identity secret. Uh, I don't think anyone ever like explored that theme until I, I saw The Watchmen, and I I thought it was, it was beautifully uh, portrayed and an excellent addition to the overall structure of the show. Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, actually... You might be surprised to hear me say it, but I think those are both great examples of where race swapping really added a lot of value to the project. And again, I, I want that to be possible. I want that to be allowed. My concern is that it really only goes in one direction. And I think it goes in that direction more often than it should. In those cases, it added value. In a lot of cases, I think it's just confusing and intentionally destructive. And it happens anyway because it's it's pushed. Yeah, I would I would definitely want to draw a distinction here um, insofar as a lot of the exam... Well, a number of the examples we bring up, maybe not so much the Watchmen one, but um, a number of uh, historical examples of non-white actors being cast for roles that were originally uh, written as white just uh, came about as a result of open auditions where they said like anybody, any actor of any race can come and audition and will cast the person who gives the best performance. That, um, that was the source of one of the most famous examples, which is uh, Morgan Freeman's role in The Shawshank Redemption where he plays a character named Red, who in the original story was a red-headed Irishman. 
but uh, it's simply that Morgan Freeman uh, gave the kind of performance that they felt was irreplaceable. And so they even just uh, gave that character the name Ellis Redding to explain why he would get that nickname. I would distinguish that from the kind of race-conscious casting that generally specifies, like, actors of such and such a race need not apply. And I would generally argue that uh, the latter is more harmful to the production as a whole in so far as it generally cuts off the possibility of a production being improved by getting a performance from somebody who nails the role but may not necessarily match the description, uh, as in Morgan Freeman in The Shawshank Redemption. So can you think of a, an example where, a counterexample where it would actually be improved to have, well, I guess I'm having trouble articulating the distinction. I, I think I understand the, disin- the distinction that you're communicating, just not fully. Because I agree, like Morgan Freeman fucking nailed that role. Uh, and whether or not that character is an Irishman or not doesn't really matter for how the movie was portrayed. Yeah. And I would say that there are definitely roles for which uh, the actor's race definitely does matter. Uh, like the movie 12 Years a Slave, for example. <laughs> it it would come across as exceedingly tin-eared to cast an actor that was not black in the <laughs> lead role in that movie. Granted, I'm imagining Ryan Gosling in that. In that <laughs> Yes, Gilbert Gottfried. No, they just no, they just oh, cast a they just cast a they just cast a Russian actor. Twelve years of Slav. Oh, <laughs> but in the case of, in the case of that movie, they didn't cast an African American actor for that role because Chiwetel Ejiofor is uh, British. But uh, in that case, the actor's ability to be seen as an African-American slave was important for the role. And you couldn't really just swap that out with anybody else and still have the story work on its merits. So Ishmael, do you agree that Morgan Freeman was an excellent cast for that role? Yeah, I I think that was a great choice on their part. Um, you know, again, it it's not the individual cases that bother me because I think it can be the right choice in a lot of cases. The problem isn't as I just linked in the show notes. There's a whole thing about redheads being replaced by black people. It's kind of odd, actually, like how how often that happens. I think it's way out of whack with uh, what the numbers will suggest. So there's individual instances where you don't mind it. I, I guess you're more concerned about the trend, right? I'm concerned about the trend, and especially as the trend relates to the larger trend of a uh, anti-whiteness in the Western society. Okay. Uh, So let me ask you this. How do you feel about James Bond being played by Idris Elba, which is, you know, everyone's every white liberal's favorite wet dream? It's just dumb. I'm ignoring it. Actually, I'm reading the Bond novels right now. Highly recommend them. They're way better than the the movies, um, but yeah, I think it's the movies like suck. generally, at least the older ones are terrible. I think they have their moments. I like the sexism, but the thing is, um, I, I think it was Idris Elba also played King Arthur at one point, which that one pissed me off because, um, why? 
because part of the authorian lore is it it authors ethnicity does matter why it's just one of those i would have to go back into all of it i used to be like a huge authorian fan but that's that's the the thing i don't like this constant assertion that skin color is completely arbitrary and anyone can be part of any ethnic group i don't believe that i think ethnicities have things in common you know from temperament to ability to all kinds of stuff and i don't think you can have an avatar of englishness or welshness or whatever you would call ancient britishness that is a black man it just doesn't work and i think if we did that to black people they will be furious no yeah i know you're going to keep saying that but if we were to like distill the legend of king arthur to its core what would you say its main themes are it's not about it's not even like really about britain it's just it's a it's a you know it's like essentially like a royal court drama well that that that's one way it's portrayed there's a lot of other stuff there is a the concept of the once and future king that Arthur is going to come back and save Britain. There's Yeah, but that's not that's not unique to Britain. Like a and bunch it, of countries have kings. Right. But if there was an African legend where that was the case and we put a white guy in there coming back to save Botswana, I I don't think people would be happy about that. And I don't think they should be. I think it would be frankly incredibly offensive to Botswanans again. I don't know if they have that legend at no, some point. Uh, but mostly I'm more asking like why does it matter? Because you know, you can have the legend of King Arthur in basically any setting and make it work provided you establish like the the right dynamics with everyone. Uh there's a there's a really good example of this. Uh it's a show that didn't get much uh notice. Yeah, this was a there was a TV show from 2009 that's called Kings and it's uh oh, yeah, it's like set in ancient Israel but like updates it to modern day with yeah so the show is about it's basically the story of king david from the bible uh and it has david and goliath but it's set in the setting is modern america if but not really america because it has a king uh and i thought it was you know portrayed well uh it made sense uh it was fairly easy or at least like fairly seamless in terms of transporting the themes that were in the story of king david into modern day society without changing that much. Like for example, instead of there is a David and Goliath, but the Goliath is a type of tank and the tank gets destroyed by like this new, like missile technology that's wielded by David. Uh, so there's ways to transpose these themes and it doesn't, it doesn't take away from anything. It makes it more interesting. Uh, so you can have, I mean, you can have like King Arthur. Uh, I'm sure there's like a King Arthur adaptation from like Nigeria uh, I wouldn't be surprised. It, there's, it's, it's these. Uh, there's the MMA. I think Face Day Night is about that, right? Uh, well, that that is actually a gender swap, uh, to my knowledge, but which is its own can of worms that we could get into, but it would probably drastically increase this episode's length. Yeah, let's no, not but, go yeah, there. That, that's fine. But the the point is, like the 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 core themes are transferable to other settings and you don't lose much. And so I'm, I'm trying to understand this like fixation, uh, especially when it comes to fictional characters. It's like, Oh, you can't change their race. And I'm just like, who gives a fuck? They're fictional. Uh, because if you're, if you're conveying the same themes, why does it matter? I, I think about this when we're talking about like Norse gods or Greek gods, everyone assumes that they're white. And I, I'm 
I mean, my first question is like, well, I, we don't know that necessarily. And, and we are talking about, you know, fictionalized truth. Uh, we don't know that necessarily what their race is. And even if we did, like, what does it matter? Because it's not core to their stories. Like if I tell, if I talk about Zeus, the things that come to mind are, oh, he's like a big fucking womanizer. He has a bunch of uh, bastardized children's everywhere. His hobby is just turning into an animal and raping some woman uh, and, you know, being full of himself and throwing thunder. It doesn't have anything to do with him being of the white race. Uh, nothing is sen- that aspect is not central to his character. So that I'm trying to understand why it matters. Uh, and I can, I think I understand your explanation, Ishmael, is that it's just part of a broader trend, but is there any other criticism beyond that? So there's this anecdote that's often repeated among the left that I think is actually a great window and representation where Whoopi Goldberg talks about how as a little girl, she saw, uh, what's her name here? Um, Nyota Uhura is the, uh, the character being portrayed by a black woman on, um, the original Star Trek. And she said, come quick, come quick. There's a black lady on television. She ain't no maid. I think that's great. I think representation does matter. I think the stories that children are raised on matter very greatly. And the way they see people like them portrayed. If you always make black kids look low status, black kids are going to internalize that. It's a real problem. I don't want that to happen to black kids. I think it's awful. I don't want it to happen to white kids either. And I think it's happening. And I think I've given several examples of that. You know, that that really freaks me out. I think it's a really scary thing that any other civilization can historically be portrayed positively. You know, the Aztec murdering tens of thousands of people in a weekend to feed their hearts to their God. Oh, yeah, we're going to portray them as like happy, smiley people and kid shows, of course. But you can't portray any historical white civilization positively, as far as I can tell. It's just not allowed anymore. And white kids are not allowed to see that. Sultan, do you agree with that? I'd have to see all the examples of the Aztecs being portrayed as happy, smiley people. Like, are you thinking of, <laughs> are you thinking of the road to El Dorado or something? I haven't seen it, although it looks great. No, I mean, partially it's, you know, so I have my daughter here and I see the things that uh, get served up to her by various media companies. And yeah, everyone is any ancient civilization is just awesome and just totally great. And we should totally respect them as valid and wonderful, but never, ever, ever whites, never, ever. I really like the apocalyptic, apocalypto. Apocalypto, yeah, Mel Gibson. Yeah, but we can't talk about Mel Gibson. He has he has his own baggage. And people got mad about that movie because how dare you portray them accurately, essentially? And it wasn't entirely accurate, but it was pretty close. That was in the Halcyon days of two thousand six. Naturally. Yeah. Well, and something else I'd like to bring up while we're on the subject, and before we wrap up. Is that um, so when we talk about diversity and casting and we we talk about all these multi-ethnic characters being portrayed and Western civilizations, I want to point out that we get diversity in terms of skin color, but we don't generally get diversity in terms of different cultural worldviews. And you see, and I'm sure you can speak to this, 
When was the last time you saw, you know, like Muslims from the old country with frankly offensive beliefs portrayed, <laughs> you know, in, in Western TV shows? No, it's always a woman in hijab who's like totally Western in every way. And, you know, flaunts her, you know, painted She's like nails. A cool Muslim. Exactly. It's always that. She's totally it's, cool with and, gay and trans people. And no problems whatsoever. Exactly. So it's, it's, we don't even really get diversity. Well, didn't you know that Islam is the most feminist religion? <laughs> right. No, I, I completely know? agree. I, I think the, I mean, I, I, I disagree with your position that there's, there's a concern about uh, white accomplishments being erased. I completely disagree. I don't, think you're being hyperbolic, but you know, you're entitled to your opinion. Uh, I do agree with you that there is too much of a fixation on uh, the essential racial characteristics rather than what they translate into. Uh, and I wrote about this in like my post a while ago. The only example I can cite that really, I mean, the main example that I can cite that really hit this is the TV show Rami, which I recommend to everyone. Uh, but it portrayed the millennial Muslim immigrant story so, so beautifully and so accurately. And it, I, I definitely appreciated how much I could draw from my own experience when I was watching that movie, uh, when I was watching that show. And it was, it was nice to be represented in media and represented in a way that was, that didn't try to hide things like his uncle Nassim is, <laughs> you know, he's blatantly uh, anti-Semitic. He thinks that the Jews like did nine 11 and that re resonates with the, my own uncles that believe the same thing and like my own dad who believes the same Jewish conspiracies. And we never see that in media because it's, it's, you know, it runs counter to the narrative that Muslims are like the good, good people and like don't ever say anything that's problematic. So I appreciated how honest and relatable Rami was. And I really also appreciate how successful of a show it was with the wider audience. I just, uh, before we wrap up, like to return to what I said about Blade Runner 2049 regarding like if a movie is good, then it can manage to sidestep uh, accusations of improbably white casting uh, apart from like the standard think pieces in the familiar outlets. And the flip side of that is that if a movie is bad and is subject to what is seen as improbably white casting, then that's all that people are going to remember about it. Like the example that I would uh, draw from for that would be uh, Roland Emmerich's movie about Stonewall. But if you look up uh, the cast of Stonewall, it is primarily white. There's You can see that there's one person who's cast as Marsha P. Johnson, who is the uh, trans woman of color that uh, a lot of people will point to uh, as an assertion that the Stonewall riots were comprised like principally and or exclusively of trans women of color. And, and I'll just go on record. St Stonewall was mostly white men. Yes. Uh, doing the rioting. And we have photographic evidence of the night in question to, to make that, that claim. I can also put, post a link by uh, a blog post by a historian. And also, uh, yeah, Marsha P. Johnson was not the first one that threw a brick. Yeah. Yeah. There's that uh, sort of pop narrative that uh, springs up largely around her. But yeah, I would say that the main thing that got attached to Stonewall was that the movie itself wasn't very good. Like, not good enough to rise beyond just those 
petty criticisms of its uh, casting choices. And as a result, that's pretty much all that anybody remembers about it. I mean, for me, I'll, I just want to recommend, uh, I want to co-sign again that there is insufficient attention paid to diversity of experience when it comes to portrayals in media. And just as a recommendation, uh, for example, um, there's a, a movie I, I love. It's 2006. It's called Ten Canoes. And it's entirely made by uh, Australian Aboriginal uh, cast and production team. And it's about, a, it's about an Aboriginal story. And I loved it because it was a it was surprising to me just how much humor translates across cultures. Uh, and that's something that's, that ties us together. It's kind of a universal, a universal truth. It was a very funny movie and portrayed a, a life that I was completely unfamiliar with. Another example would be, um, that's also, uh, indigenous casting and production, Atanarujuat, the fast runner, which was made by, I think like a Canadian, uh, uh, production team. That was also a mythological story that was core to the, the tribe that made it. Uh, and it was also an excellent way to see, to peer into an alternate uh, culture that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. And the last, the, the last one I recommend is this uh, Iranian film called A Separation. The, the basic premise, it's about a, a couple that separates and a bunch of things happen. It's also just a wonderful movie. Uh, and it also allowed me to peer into Iranian culture and life which I otherwise was not familiar with, despite me being from uh, the Middle East. Uh, so those are, those are, I think, outstanding examples of true diversity in media uh, because they portray a different uh, experience rather than just you know, using a different race as a placeholder for diversity. What about you, Ishmael? Anything else you want to leave us with? Just another window. And I... I apologize because I tried many times to Google this and I couldn't find it. But you guys might recall a few years back, there was an ad for, I think, some kind of exercise bike that showed like a blonde woman and four blonde kids and they're all happy together. And the internet flipped out and everyone was concerned because isn't this kind of racist? This makes me kind of uncomfortable. I think that's a very real sentiment. I think... Anti-white animus is real. I think that healthy, beautiful white families and communities are horrifying to the left and they will erase them given the chance. And that's what they're doing. Okay. I guess that's what we close off of. Actually, I have one more thing to say. I, I think when it comes to um, blended families and blended friend groups and all that, this is a case where one generation is happy to have all the not all the families, many, many families on TV be portrayed as mixed race and all the friends group portrayed as mixed race. We all understand. And that's not reality. That's not how things actually are by and large, but we don't mind it being portrayed that way because it's not a big deal. But kids grow up and their worldviews are overwhelmingly based on what they see portrayed in media. I think, or if not overwhelmingly, then heavily. Um, and they don't understand that, no, actually that isn't normal. That isn't reality. But it is their expectation and totally get to the point where white people growing up in a white town see a happy, beautiful white family on TV and go, something's wrong here. This doesn't feel right. I think that is happening and it's going to get worse. Okay. I disagree, but I understand your position. So thank you, everyone. It's good to be back.
many happy returns.